You can have a seat. We haven't had a chance to meet. My name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and uh, really, really glad you're here. Uh, I'd love to get a chance to meet you, especially if you're new. Um, this morning's text is, uh, is a hard one, and it's a heavy one. Um, but there's a beauty, um, so much beauty in some of these passages that Scripture gives that we, we want to kind of turn our eyes away from. But actually, there's a beautiful invitation if we stop and we set in that and we actually look at what God is telling us in his word. So uh, I'm going to pray for you because I, 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 we're always dependent on the Holy Spirit to be at work. Uh, but particularly in this passage, I want to pray that the Holy Spirit is working in, in uh, speaking to you. And if you would pray for me. Um, God, we... We need you. We need your wisdom. We need your presence. We're asking you to speak to us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you are new here or you, you haven't been here in a little while, we're in the middle of a series uh, on the book of Job, um, not usually the one that everybody runs to uh, to, to, to jump all over, um, the, but, but I want to say that the, the book of Job is hard, but it is so beautiful. It is one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written, and not just a great piece of literature because it's got fancy words and, and nice organization, but because it opens our eyes to see profound truths that the world wants to dim. The reason that Job is in our Bibles is not because Job suffered, but because we do. The reason we have the book of Job is not so that we can get some historical anecdote or some parable but that we can get a compass. The interesting thing about a compass is that it doesn't show us north, but it points us towards it. That there's this direction, and, and there's something about this that's so beautiful in Job that there are things that we are asking, questions we are asking that we cannot see the answers to, and yet this book points us in the direction that we need to go. One of the most beautiful aspects of the Christian faith is how it prepares us for suffering. Because suffering will come. If you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want to ask you to wrestle deeply with the claims and the things we're talking about and ask yourself, what's the question? What's the answer to suffering? Over the last two weeks, we've looked at three chapters of Job and we've seen two things quite simply. The first is that Job is an innocent sufferer. The, the, the story of Job tells us, uh, or the, the book of Job tells us about a man who did not do anything to earn or deserve or uh, warrant necessarily by his actions the suffering that he's walking through. He's walking through intense amounts of suffering, suffering that none of us have ever experienced, but he's innocent. And last week we looked at Job left in this place of lament and grief. Today, we're going to cover 34 chapters of Job. <laughs> Yeehaw. These are 34 chapters, um, though, that we often skip or skim, right? I mean, these 34 chapters in Job are, are, are the kinds of uh, part, part, the parts of the scripture that disrupt many of our Bible reading plans. We're like, I'm doing great on my reading. I got through three chapters of Job. And then you hit 34, and you're like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I can keep going. 
It's right up there with Leviticus and derailing these things. And part of the reason is because it's confusing and at times feels conflicting and it often seems repetitive. The, the book of Job, though, is, is forcing us to confront things that are hard to confront. What we're finding in these 34 chapters is a contentious dialogue between Job and his friends. See, Job is a, is a sufferer. We are let in on the secret. We know he's innocent. But his friends are trying to explain why this is happening. We know that at, at the end of the book that God will commend Job and condemn his friends. But we're confused because there are times we're listening to Job's friends going, actually, they sound right. And there's a few times when Job opens his mouth and we're like, I think he needs he needs a really good therapist. And we're like, is Job really the good guy here? And we're confused. But I think there's another reason we skip or skim this section. Because so often in life, especially as 21st century Westerners, we've been taught to turn our eye away from suffering. We've been taught that somehow we can navigate life with all of our gadgets and all of our tricks to avoid suffering. And this text smacks us in the face. When we try to avert our eyes from suffering, it draws us right back in. We don't want to dwell on it. We want to buffer ourselves. We want to distract ourselves or distance ourselves from suffering. But Job brings it right back into view. We try to avert our eyes, but we can't. And when we can't, we're left asking three questions. Why this? Why me? Why now? Why this? Why me? Why now? These are the very questions that Job is asking. In chapter 7, Job says this, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days or a breath. Listen to, listen to the weight behind these words. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do, you, what do I do to you? You watcher of mankind. Why have you made me your mark? Why have you become a burden to me? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie on the earth. You shall seek me, but I shall not be. The weight of the questions. In over 34 chapters, Job pours his heart out like this over and over and over and over again. And what is God's answer? Silence. Silence. Guys, it's not easy to swallow, but that's what we're left with. Peter Kreef says it this way. The book of Job is an enigma answering another enigma. The enigma it answers is life's deepest problem, the problem of evil or suffering or injustice in the world, supposedly ruled by a just God. This God, however, is not a hard, bright, brittle little formula, but a mystery. He's the God of whom Rabbi Abraham Heschel says, God is not nice. God is not an uncle. God is an earthquake. 
We may or may not like that God, the God who is an earthquake rather than an uncle, but our likes and dislikes do not change reality. If we cannot take the God of Job and the rest of the Bible, that is skin off our noses, but not off of God's. We do not make the universe hold its breath by holding ours. Because this passage is heavy. Because so much of life is heavy. And in our heaviness, so often we're confronted by silence. And the silence of God is hard. It leaves us feeling alone. It leaves us feeling helpless. It leaves us feeling rudderless and powerless. Guys, we don't like suffering, but we're repulsed by silence. But too often, when we're faced with pain and suffering, only to be confronted by the blaring silence of God, we feel the need to speak because silence scares us. We feel the need to speak because the silence scares us. This is exactly what Job's friends are doing. They're asking all of these questions, these why questions. Why is our friend suffering the way he is? We saw last, we saw in, in chapter two and three, they sit with him silently for seven days. They're grieving with their friend and they're asking the same questions Job is. But they can't stand God's silence and so they feel the need to speak. Now we're not gonna go over 34 chapters in, uh, of dialogue in detail or we'd be here till probably Tuesday afternoon. And, and honestly, the detail here is not the point of the book. But, but let, me, let me be very, very clear. You won't get the point of the book if you don't wrestle with these chapters. You will not understand Job if you do not wrestle hard with these 34 chapters. We must not miss that the heart of the friend's responses to Job's suffering are ours as well. If we're to take these, the, 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 this dialogue and distill it down, it's a little simplistic, but if we distill it down, I think we find three commonalities, three ideas that they're putting forward over and over and over again to try to explain to Job why what is happening is happening. The first is cause and effect. Cause and effect. You do something, there's an outcome or an effect. The second is correction and punishment, that God corrects those that err and punish those that sin. And the last is training in wisdom, that suffering is there to teach us something. We're going to step through these and just in, in brief, cause and effect. Essentially what Job's friends, when they talk about cause and effect, are saying is that suffering is God's tool for maintaining the universe. That, that suffering following sin or suffering following something that we do is kind of like gravity or thermodynamics. There's an if-then relationship. If you do this thing, this thing happens. And it's to try to keep things in order. It answers the question of why are we suffering with the question or with the answer, well, you did X. Pain is seen as a consequence for wrong behavior of mistakes in life. Touch a hot stove and you get burned. This is how Eliphaz puts it in Job 4. As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, 
reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. That's sowing and reaping. Zophar says it this way in Job 20. Utter darkness is laid out for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. See the consequence? You do the thing, and this happens. What is left in his tents will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. Cause and effect. You do something, something bad comes in return. The second idea they push to is discipline, discipleship, or punishment. What they're saying here is suffering is God's tool to drive us away from sin and wickedness and towards holy living and righteousness. It answers the question, why are we suffering with, you failed? Why are you suffering? You failed. It focuses on correction or punishment. Eliphaz says this in Job 4. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Bildad says this way in chapter 8. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against them, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Elihu in chapter 36. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. Listen to this. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. But with kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. Why are you suffering, Job? Sin. Want to stop suffering? Repent. The third is this idea of being trained into wisdom. That suffering is seen here as God's tool for teaching wisdom or giving instruction. It answers the question of why am I suffering with the, with the answer, you lack something. You suffer because you lack. Zophar, chapter 11. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? It's higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity. Will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Wow. He would have been great on Twitter. <laughs> Eliphaz, chapter f- 5. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. As for me, I would seek God. And to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without numbers. He gives rain to the earth and sends water to the field. Now, let's be very, very clear. There are some things, some individual things that the friends say that actually are true. They don't utter complete nonsense the entire time. They're saying things, I'm like, yeah, I think I'd actually agree with that. But when you take what they say as a holistic picture 
what they say is fundamentally not true. Job's friends do not have a category for innocent suffering. They don't have a category for innocent suffering. So they are forced to explain why. They're forced to explain why. Their answers are part karma and part prosperity gospel. What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. And hey, if you'll just do the right thing, God will give you nice tricks and trinkets. But they did not see creation, Job, or God correctly. Because they could not stand in God's silence, they uttered fundamental untruths. Job's reply. He's not going to stand by while his friends say stuff that's not true. And that brings us to the text that Marissa read earlier. I want us to look back at it. Job 13. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty and desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent. And it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument. Listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God? And speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality towards him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well for you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you. If in secret you show partiality, will not his majesty terrify you? And the dread of him fall upon you. I love this. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Proverbs of ashes, defenses of clay. They sound wise. To many who would have been listening to the friends and Job talk, they would have said, I'm with the friends. They say hard things, but they sound like they're saying true things. It sounds pious. It sounds wise. But what Job points out is what they're saying and what they are advocating for is vile and ignorant. Job is willing to sit in a moment when he can't answer the question why, but his friends aren't. They demand an answer. And when they don't get one from God, they give one themselves. Martin Buber says this fundament, that the fundamental difference between Job and his friends is that the three friends speak about God, but Job speaks to God. The three friends speak about God, but Job speaks to God. What Job is left with in this, though, is, is a God who is silent, and so his questions aren't answered. He knows his friends are wrong, but he's left with the question, what is true? Peter Kreef says it this way. We must not see Job's three friends as fools because they are not, and because then we would miss the great drama, the irony, the contrast between appearance and reality. We must sympathize with the friends in order to be shocked by God, as they were. In a sense, this is the main reason the book was written, to shock the reader with God, the real God. 
the Lord of the Absurd, to use Father Raymond Noger's title, as distinct from the comfortable and convenient God of our own expectations and categorizations. See, Job and his friends may have demanded answers to their questions, but they were confronted by God's firm response, his silence. But that silence forces them to confront a God who would respond like that. Now, these questions are really important for us to wrestle with because they're not just Job's friends' questions. They're ours, right? I think that's why this book is so deep and penetrating is because we sympathize. The very questions that Job is wrestling with, the very questions that Job's friends are wrestling with are the questions that we ask. I've, I've sat with many of you in this room and you've sat with me. Went through tears We've wrestled with the same questions. Why? Haven't we? In this room, I see the faces where we've asked these questions together through tears. Why this diagnosis? Why was I sexually abused as a kid? Why did my marriage end? Why is my loved one gone? Why is there no cure to this disease and why will it not relent? Why? 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 We keep looking for a secret. We keep looking for an easy way to articulate or understand what's going on. We want a way around our suffering. We don't want to have to walk through it. Some of you know my story, some don't. 27, had a heart attack, and at 35 was diagnosed with congestive heart failure, and so to this day, I still carry that with me, and so I, I carry just this, um, I, I don't feel it every day like I, I have in the past, but I, I carry things I wish I didn't have to carry um, after my heart attack. Uh, my beautiful wife, we were been married for about three years at this time. Having a heart attack, they... Uh, I would say they rushed me in the, ho- the, the ambulance from one hospital to the next, but um, it was a bit of a, a slow kind of joyride, um, which the doctor was not happy with when we finally got to the other hospital. And he rushed me into surgery. <laughs> and uh, so we did, we did surgery, and, and I'm lying in ICU. And so, so we're living in Oregon at the time. We're a long ways from my parents and my family. And so they called a, 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 a relative that lived in the vicinity uh, just to let them know, uh, because it was they were, were not going to be able to get a flight out until the next day to come see us. And so this family member came and tracked Sherry down in the ICU. He had, he had never met her. Um, you would hope that he would do what Job's friends first did and sit in silence for a few days. Um, he didn't. He began to probe and ask and inquire what sin was going on in our life that caused it. Still angry. A week later, he showed up in my hospital room and stared out at the window and said, Jeff, he goes, sometimes God brings suffering so that he can teach you how to heal people. And I wanted to throw him out the window. But as angry as I was at him, I was angry because the very questions he was asking out loud were the ones I was asking inside. 
He wasn't asking anything that I wasn't asking. He wasn't wrestling with anything I wasn't wrestling with. I was asking the question, what did I do to cause this? I was asking the question, what sin do I need to repent of to make this go away? I was asking, what do I need to learn, God, for you to relent? And God's response to my questions, silence. C.S. Lewis, in his amazing book, A Grief Observed, he, he's processing what to do with his grief after the passing of his wife. And he says this, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel that his claims upon you are an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face. And the sound of bolting. Of double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. I remember being so desperate for answers. And I was angry when I didn't get them. And I've sat with some of you. When all you wanted was answers and you were angry because they didn't come. But there's something about the way that we approach this that we think if we have answers, somehow we'll either find relief or control. That if I, if I can just understand what's going on, it'll give me some relief. I don't have to carry this anxiety. Or maybe it'll let me control it. Because if I know what I did to cause the suffering, then I can change it. If I know what sin I'm being punished for, I can repent of it. If I know what I need to learn, I can try to speed up the school lesson so that God will relent. But so often, answers aren't found. And if we're not content to sit in silence, we've got a world that's waiting on standby, ready to supply all kinds of answers. We live in a world in which, whether it's actually the religious view of karma or it's some kind of new uh, domesticated sense of karma, we're taught that, hey, what goes around comes around. The world will also just say, hey, what's good, what's bad? It's nihilism. There's no point to life. But inside the church, there's two that I find really disgusting. The first, ripping this off from Andrew Burkhart, it's Caleb's sentimentality, positive and encouraging. Put a smile, grit your teeth, don't let somebody see your pain. Or this kind of sense of cold sovereignty. God's in control and indifferent to the pain. But these untrue answers do nothing in the face of God's silence. Instead of, they, what they try to do is turn our eyes off of God and back to ourselves. But the power of God's silence, listen to me very, very carefully here. The power of God's silence is that it reframes our questions. 
And it's in the reframing of the questions that we find hope. God's silence shifts us from demanding a why to longing for a who. God's silence shifts us from demanding a why to longing for a who. Job wants to know why. That much is clear. He says so many times over. He continues to ask God or even demand God for an answer. But when no answer to his question of why comes, he turns his question to who. Who is this God? Can he be trusted? And is he who I thought he was? Later in the book, Job will face the pure ferocity of this great God when, he, when God speaks. But right now, he faces his silence. And the silence forces him to ask different questions. So what he says in, in, in Job 19. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Listen to this. For I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. A few chapters later, in chapter 26, he says this, The, the, dread, the dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in this thick cloud, and the cloud will not split open underneath them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillar of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the, fleeting, the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? You see, Job knows that ultimately his hope is not found in an answer to his question of why, but is found in his Redeemer who lives. Now he's, make no mistake, he's mad at his Redeemer right now. But he knows where to turn. The why becomes a who. Who is this God? What do I do with him? He's a mystery. He's a profound, confounding, beautiful, enthralling mystery. But Job doesn't run from this God when he faces God's silence. He runs to him. When we're confronted by a God who brings us to the end of ourselves, we find a hope that we didn't know existed. We also, though, have something that Job didn't have. 
Job was asking many of these questions. He didn't know the reality of who this God was because that had not yet been revealed. But the sovereign God who Job turns to is no stranger to suffering. This God is not only somebody who can, can, can theoretically understand what suffering is. This God is, in Jesus, the innocent sufferer. So Job turns his attention to this Redeemer, but he doesn't yet know that that Redeemer will take on human flesh and step into the most intense suffering that anyone will ever face and did it with complete, out of complete innocence. That Jesus, the innocent sufferer, knows what it's like to hurt. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to ache. I love this. When he's on the cross, Jesus says and does so many things that are profound in that moment. But right before he dies, he turns our attention to two different psalms. The first is when he utters these words. Now remember, this is God himself incarnate. Says to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what answer does he get back from the father? Silence. Silence. And then he says these words. Into your hands I commit my spirit. This is our hope, friends. This is our hope that the one who sustains the universe understands because he has suffered himself. That the God who holds all things together, even when he is silent, is not indifferent. He is silent, but he is not indifferent. He may, speak, he may not speak to us outside of the pages of these scriptures. He may not give us a particular understanding of our suffering, but he is not unaware. He may be quiet, but he is with us. So what do we do? What do we do? With, how do we respond to this? I want to turn our attention to a couple things that are simple, but they're not easy. Simple, but they're not easy. I think Job teaches us four responses. The first response, in the light of suffering that we don't understand and, in, and being confronted with God's silence, the first response is to grieve. To grieve. It's okay to cry. It's okay to lament. I remember when I was in the, the middle of uh, some deep depression setting in after my, my heart failure diagnosis. I had breakfast with Josh Curry and Rex Barrett. If you don't know them, they're uh, pastors in our church. And Josh founded this church and Rex is our executive pastor. 
I sat down with him over breakfast, and I was just weeping and weeping and weeping. And I told him, I don't, I don't know what to do. And Josh just looked at me. He goes, sometimes all you can do is grieve, and that's okay. And those words served me really well because I was desperately grasping for something instead of sitting in what I needed to sit in. Chad served us so well last week just looking at Job's lament in chapter 3. If you weren't here last week, I I recommend go get that audio and, and see what Job does in this. He teaches us how to grieve. The second response is to behold. Behold. We behold a God revealed in Scripture that defies our understanding, but who is near to us. He is, the scriptures will portray him as the transcendent one and yet also the imminent one. The one who is far above and beyond and yet is nearby. He's powerful. He is present. He sees us and he is good. Third, we move towards trust. Despite all of Job's anger at God, in the end, he trusts him. And when Jesus was on the cross, we just said, he cries out, my God, my God, why? And when no answer comes, he points our attention to Psalm 31. And I want us to look there real quick. Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. See, see this move? This is not just grieving. This is not just seeing or beholding, but it's actually entrusting. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Trust. Not trusting God in the answers he gives you, but trusting in who this God is. And lastly, we wait, but we wait in hope. God is not slow, the scriptures tell us, but he's patient. I don't always understand why he does what he does. I I don't understand why people in this room and myself have had to navigate things we have had to navigate. I don't know what tomorrow holds. But I know this, that God is faithful and he will never, ever abandon his children. So while we wait for the fact that God will redeem, we, we, we stand with Job and we say, we know our Redeemer lives. And we, living on this side of the cross, can say that our God, the innocent sufferer, is our hope. I was in tears as Blake and the team led us through the song earlier. And I just want to turn our attention back to these lyrics. Speak, singing about Jesus. He shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun 
shall pierce the night. And I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. We wait in our suffering. We wait in the silence, but we wait in hope because we see him. And while we don't know how long our suffering will last, we know he will return and set things right. If you're not a Christian here, I'm so glad you're here. And I just want to say a couple of things. I don't know what your understanding of God is. I don't know where where you've picked up an understanding of what Christianity says about God, but let me just say two things. He's not a soft, cuddly, or not a soft, cuddly teddy bear, nor is he a distant, strict disciplinarian. He's a good father. And as a good father, he's also an innocent sufferer who sees and knows. So I just want to say, if you're here and you've got questions about this, God, we want to process with you. I'll just tell you, God's not afraid of your answer, or not afraid of your questions, and neither are we. You can bring any questions you have. We want to process with you. But as we close, I want us to, I want to ask each of you this question. What are you carrying today? What are you carrying today? Are you demanding answers to why? Are you resting in who he is? Are you trying to figure out where you are? This is a place where we can bring all that we're wrestling with to God. He can handle it. You may not have an answer to why, but you do have a who, and he is with you. Would you stand with me?